Uh, This is the word of God to you this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, she's not just saying they have no wine. She means them to do something. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I'll just pause here for a second. When it says woman, we should not think that he's being derogatory. Woman, what's that? No, he's not like that. Uh, This is actually a proper greeting, kind of like saying ma'am. It's not the way you'd address your mother, but he's saying ma'am. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, uh, which is about 150 to 180 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, or that is to say are drunk, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let me pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the gravity and the beauty and uh, the glory of Jesus that is manifested to us in it. I pray that you would come now and... uh, begin to work in our hearts, begin to expose the ways uh, that we are confused about you, the lies we believe about you. Do this, Lord, by exposing uh, your grace to us, showing us your glory. Pray that you would make uh, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth pleasing in your sight, edifying to your people. We pray, Spirit, that you would come and renew your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Where's my water? Here we are. Well, uh, growing up in Seattle, uh, in the summers in fourth and fifth grade, my mom would often take us and drop us off at Green Lake, uh, me and some friends. We'd stay at Green Lake all day long, and uh, just great memories there. Those were the days when it was hot in Seattle. I think there was a drought back then. Uh, And, uh, you know, we would swim all day. So much fun playing in the water, and there was, the algae wasn't even that bad back then, so you could swim in Green Lake all day, and you didn't have to worry about getting some sickness afterwards. Uh, you know, jumping off docks, cannonballs, water fights, all of the uh, tomfoolery, that's just good for boys. Uh, one memory of those summers, though, was a bitter one. Uh, my mom picked up some of my friends from school, uh, who were good friends, and uh, we all went, and it was great and fun. Uh, we were hanging out in the water until they started talking to me about all the cool new stuff they'd gotten, right? Uh, I don't know if it was like Nike shoes uh, or if it was a new gaming system they got or some new uh, game on their computer, Uh, 
they talked all about how fun it was, the cool games it had, and so on. Uh, and then, I think it was actually in slow motion, uh, if you were to go back and look at the tapes. Slow motion, they turn to me, and they say, what about you, Daniel? What do you have? Well, I should have said, nothing. That's why I'm hanging out with you guys, right? <laughs> this is supposed to be my gravy train. Uh, but I don't even know if I mustered an answer at all, uh, or if I just burst into tears. Uh, part of that is because I thought they were betraying me as friends. I thought the point, the time had finally come uh, where they were ready to ditch me. Because I could read between the lines and I realized what, the, that what they're actually saying, what they're really trying to tell me was that because I didn't have these cool things, uh, we couldn't actually be friends anymore. Right? Because I didn't have whatever, now I'm not cool enough and we all know uh, that your personal value is determined by how cool your friends are. So I had to be ditched. I knew that the world uh, was full of good and beautiful things, but that the people in the world are cruel and exacting. And when the world sees your shame, what it tells you to do is to ditch anyone uh, who is shameful, to leave you behind for better opportunities. Here's the trick, though. Uh, I thought my friends were being cruel. I thought my friends were ready to uh, kind of pounce on me, right? I've been kind of waiting for this other shoe to drop, not because they were particularly bad guys, but because I knew that this point would come in our friendship where they realized I was actually not as cool as I'd pretended to be. But the reality is that they were actually just excited to share the good things with me, right? I was their friend. They wanted me to know about the good things they had, and they, want, they, they went at length, after I started crying, to try and convince me, no, no, Dan, you can still come over, you can still play with us, this is for you. But it was too late. You see, I'd already believed for a long time that uh, I knew that they would ditch me. My cynicism towards relationships had been well-worn by that point. It was actually not their fault at all. Uh, I had a very deep-running cynicism. Uh, that actually has continued to affect most of my friendships up to this day. Uh, what they were ready to share, through my cynicism, I understood them to be touting it over my head. Uh, my cynicism blinded me to their generosity, to the generosity. Now, here's the deal. Cynicism actually finds plenty of fuel for its own fire, right? There's plenty of opportunity for it to be strengthened every time someone lets us down or we're disappointed or someone hurts us. Uh, whether or not it's intentional, we can uh, pile all of that into the cynicism that burns so powerfully. The problem is that uh, we actually just don't see how much our cynicism to our hurts actually blinds us to reality. We actually don't see reality as it is. Now here's the real trick, uh, the real problem, is that when we come to the Lord, we take all of our previous relationships and all of the cynicism and all the hurt that that's brought into us, and we begin to apply that to the Lord. So that now when the Lord uh, calls us to do something or obey Him in some way, we immediately think it's because we have to earn His favor. We have to prove something because that's what everyone else is expected of us. It means if He forgives us, means that he actually doesn't care much about us. He doesn't care what we do, just don't bother him. It means that uh, if he corrects us in some way, we immediately imagine that he secretly hates us and that he's been embarrassed of us this whole time and has just been finding a way to say it. Here's what I want to say. We believe a lie about God. We believe God to be a miser, a scrooge, 
that when he gives gifts, it's begrudgingly. He's not happy about it. His generosity is a begrudging generosity. That's what we believe in our heart of hearts many days. Um, We think that when we say God deserves all the glory, it means that he's possessive of his glory. He doesn't want to share it with anyone else and he is uh, going to grasp after it and is actually eager to rob us of any dignity and to debase us. That's kind of uh, the lie that dwells in us. I still remember the night uh, that it dawned on me that the Lord actually loved me. Not because he had to, but because he actually wanted to. Uh, at the time, my wife and I were uh, doing terribly. <laughs> and uh, it was such a relief to know uh, that in spite of myself, the Lord actually enjoys me. He actually likes giving things to me. It was not a chore for him to be gracious. It's not a chore for him to be gracious. Now, that cynicism that I've described has taken years to melt away. But it's not melted away through yelling at myself. It's actually melted away by looking at the Lord and beholding his kindness, his great, generous kindness towards me in Christ. Now, before we actually get to the text, I just want to say, you know, I think actually for some of you... uh, I think that uh, you may often feel that the other shoe is constantly dropping. That you can describe your life as a series of unfortunate events. Uh, And in fact, uh, it's not crazy because in fact there are likely terrible things that have happened to you. Terrible events, terrible relationships, terrible interactions. uh, And that makes sense. But what we may not see is that actually those are so powerful that they have colored the rest of your view of the entire, your entire life, of reality itself. Now, I don't want to tell you this morning that because of Jesus, all of those things are better. That's not what I'm saying. No, in fact, actually walking with the Lord many times makes those relationships more tense. In fact, walking with the Lord often means that you have to go and walk through and dig through those painful areas. In fact, life with the Lord is often harder What I want to say to you this morning is actually your relationship with the Lord doesn't have to be anything like what you've come to expect from other people. It's very different. The Lord is not like the world. Now, some of you may feel like your life was one of constant frustration, disappointment, or even uh, some degree of injustice. It wasn't supposed to be this way, right? Uh, And... Certainly there are disappointments. No one likes working night shift, right? Uh, Relationships can be conflicted. Money and health can disappear, and those are hard. But I sometimes wonder, uh, and I'll just, this is my personal question, if my generation is especially guilty of uh, expecting our life to be like a cakewalk. Uh, And you all know what cakewalks are, right? It's like musical chairs, and when the music stops, you end up at a cake, and you walk home with a cake in your hands, right? It's very fun. Uh, We should try it sometime. Uh, (laughs) CCB cakewalk. Uh, So when any challenge, though, because we have this expectation, any challenge, any uh, consequence of our actions or the slightest whiff of hardship comes our way, uh, we think we're being attacked. We think we're being robbed of what is rightfully ours what we are entitled to. Now, I think that this passage has some really significant challenges for us, for our sense of entitlement. But I just want to say that this challenge is not in the form of direct rebuke. 
The challenge for us is that our cynicism will be exposed as we actually begin to look at Jesus' glorious, glorious generosity. Verse 11 says that Jesus manifested his glory. Manifested or revealed his glory. It's this glory that I want to think about today. What does John mean by glory? What, what about Jesus is glorious here? And I think that as we do this, our view of who the Lord is, as well as our view of the whole world that he has made, will actually begin to take on its right color. As we think about who the Lord is, we will actually begin to see things correctly. And that's because his glory touches everything. So I have four points this morning. First, uh, Jesus... His glory covers our shame. Jesus' glory covers our shame. Second, Jesus is the glorious creator. Third, Jesus is the glorious consummator. Consummator. Fourth, Jesus is the glorious crucified one. Glorious crucified one. So first, Jesus' Jesus's glory covers our shame. All right, so this wedding uh, has a tremendous potential of going south. All right, so what we know about weddings in Galilee in the first century is uh, they could go on customarily for seven days. All right, the actual wedding ceremony, and then the party lasts oftentimes for seven days. That sounds like a blast. Uh, they could actually go on for much longer than that. Uh, so when we come into the story, it could be in the beginning, it could be in the middle. Uh, the wine runs out. Now, listen, our whole view of hospitality, the way we think about it is we have RSVPs, right? We respond to say we're coming and then we plan and designate a certain amount of food and wine allocated uh, for the heavy eaters and the light eaters and we kind of average it and that's good. That's totally foreign to the way the hospitality works in, uh, in the Bible, but also across most of the world. Uh, the way hospitality works in other cultures is that if you're a guest and you come to dinner at my house, uh, your expectation should be you can eat as much as you want. Ad nauseum, uh, there's no designation. The only limit is my generosity. The only limit is my generosity, how much I provide. If we run out, that says to you and me that I only have this much love for you, Right? So uh, it would be terribly embarrassing if you're having a wedding and the wine runs out. Right? What kind of a party is this? It's taken as a measure of your generosity, your love towards your guest. So you can imagine the shame that this couple would feel on the day of their union, which should be celebration, is now a day of total embarrassment. That they have totally disgraced all of their guests. They don't care about them. Now that's not true of this couple, but uh, this is certainly the situation. So, what would you do to remedy this, right? What, how do you rescue a wedding going south? Do you flag down the couple? You're out of wine. I hope you know. No, they can't do anything about it. Uh, or do you run off in a flurry and kind of, you know, uh, with the dolly, bring in the, the kegs of wine? That's just going to cause more of a scene. And you're going to embarrass the couple. So Mary gets it in her head. Listen, I, I know a guy. <laughs> I know a guy who can help us out here. So she comes to Jesus and... Uh, says to him in this very coy, understated way uh, that mothers can be good at sometimes, uh, dear, uh, they're out of wine. Now, it's not just an indicative. She wants him to do something. Uh, Jesus, sensing her expectation, uh, actually corrects her. Very gently, he corrects her. 
right? Uh, it turns out uh, that after he corrects her, he goes on to actually supply the wine for the wedding. So it's not as if he's opposed to supplying the wine. He's opposed to something else. He's opposed to this. Jesus corrects her because he does not want to use this as an occasion for a public display of his glory. He says, my hour has not yet come. His hour is his hour of public glorification. He says, listen, this is not the time or the place for me to display my glory. Because, after all, that would begin to compete with the wedding itself. Think about it. Your wedding day, Jesus shows up, and the Son of God has to come and remedy your wine shortage, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's fairly embarrassing. And it takes away from the actual celebration of the wedding itself. So it turns out that actually only the disciples, the mother, and the servants know about the miracle. Very limited group. This is a back doors kind of miracle. So the servants bring the wine to the master of the feast, kind of the head waiter, and he tastes it. And, you know, of course, he has no idea where this comes from, which means that he's not trying to praise Jesus. He actually tastes it and says, this is great. He actually means it's better than the good stuff. Right? Now, here's where it gets remarkable. The waiter, the master of the, of the feast, he takes this good wine as a symbol, as a mark of the bridegroom's generosity. Of the bridegroom's generosity in the very place where the bridegroom should have expected to be ashamed. The very moment when this groom should have been thinking, ah, oh, this is so embarrassing, we ran out of wine. In fact, now he's complimented for his generosity. Can you see it? Jesus turns the water into wine simply for the sake of this couple. This is just sheer kindness. There's no correction, there's no public shaming, there's no drama. His love covers their shame even before they knew about it. Now we need to pause on this for a moment and just try and learn something about what Jesus' mission is. Okay? First off, it's interesting that in John, Jesus' first miracle is not one of healing or of, or of sympathy for human suffering. And certainly he gets to that. But he begins uh, by this kind of secret miracle. No poles are boosted, right? He doesn't get any street cred for this phenomenal wine production. Uh, it's just sheer, unrewarded, unnoticed, no strings attached, generosity. It's just gift. That's all there is to it. Jesus, his glory is manifested in his generosity. Now, do you know this about him? Do you know that he does this all the time in your life? Do you actually believe that about the Lord? Another question is, do you offer this for others in your life? Love covers a multitude of sins. Are there people shame you'd like to expose that are actually Jesus would be careful to cover? So the second point we have this morning uh, is, the first is that Jesus' glory is uh, displayed in his, uh, what is it? and his kindness, and his generosity. The second is that his glory is displayed in his creation. That We see Jesus' glory as the glorious creator. So on the first point, he covers their shame. Now we see it as the creator. So, uh, Jesus' love of creation. 
You know, sometimes when we say that the Lord is our greatest joy and that everything pales in comparison, sometimes what some of us can hear is that actually Jesus is envious of all the other things in the world that we like, that we shouldn't like those things and we should only like the Lord. Sometimes that's the way we hear it. But actually nothing can be further from the truth. right? What good father gives gifts to his children and then is envious of the gifts? That's not the way it works. Jesus loves creation. He loves it, and we can see it in a couple ways here. He makes wine, first of all, and he blesses this wedding. So, it's remarkable that uh, for his first miracle, Jesus makes wine. If you think about this, this ought to tell us something about his view of the world. Making wine is not unspiritual for Jesus. Right? It's not below him to make good things for people to enjoy. Making things in the world is not somehow less than spiritual or less than Christian for him. Uh, in fact, he delights to do it. He delights in the world, in blessing it. Now, I just want to uh, take a second here and just think about the wine in this passage. Psalm 104 tells us that wine is given to gladden man's heart. Right. In fact, uh, if you look in verse, let's see, it'll be... Uh, verse 10, the, the uh, head waiter says, Everyone serves good wine the first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That drunk freely uh, is a word that means intoxicated. It means intoxicated. So they're not drinking grape juice, just in case you were wondering. They're not drinking grape juice. Uh, they are drinking wine. But they're also not three sheets to the wind, stumbling, slurring, drunk. Okay, We should be clear about that. There's, there's other ways to express that idea. Now, just so you know, uh, wine back in these days was actually a third of the strength. They would mix it with water, so it was a lot weaker. They would call our wine strong drink. You know, your Chateauneuf to pop 15% big legs on the side of the glass. That's strong drink. Uh, so people are clearly buzzed when Jesus makes wine, but he doesn't make it for the sake of their drunkenness. Okay? He doesn't make it for the sake of their drunkenness. Jesus is not pro-drunkenness, he's pro-wedding. Jesus makes it for the sake of their free celebration at a wedding. The problem for most of us in terms of drinking is that we drink on a Friday night like it's our wedding night. <laughs> right? Hey, it's Friday, might as well. You know, this is uh, tomorrow, eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. Uh, the other problem is that when we drink at a wedding, some of us actually drink to the point where our judgment is gone, uh, and we drink uh, actually not in celebration of God and his gifts and of weddings. We drink to numb our pain. We drink to disconnect. We drink to disengage. Jesus is not funding that kind of drunkenness here. But he's definitely funding merriment. He's definitely funding actual celebration. 150 to 180 gallons, you know how many bottles of wine that is? Uh, if you're talking 750 milliliter bottles of wine, that's 757 to 908 bottles of wine with change. Okay? So that's about a half bottle on either side. That's a lot of wine. That's crazy amounts. That's a ton. That's ridiculous. It's lavish. What this should tell us is that Jesus is not a killjoy. He's not a killjoy. He actually loves creation. He's not opposed to people being happy. Right? He's actually funding their celebration. Now, the other thing is that the Lord, he does this at a wedding. He does not find our romantic desires to be in competition with him. 
Jesus does not find our love of spouse or our desire for a spouse as evil in his sight. In fact, he blesses it. Not only did God make the first wedding, but he does his first miracle at a wedding to fund the wedding simply for the sake of a wedding. And in fact, he keeps his miracle secret so that the wedding will be a good wedding. You've got to see how in favor of our good life Jesus is. We have to see that creation itself is a gift. Jesus doesn't just make wine. He makes good wine. Ridiculously good wine. Have you ever thought about the lavishness of creation? Uh, There's a standard book in the world of food called Supper of the Lamb, written by an Episcopalian priest, uh, slightly progressive, uh, Robert Capon. And I've actually printed some of this quote in your bulletin on page three, if you want to go there. His theme is the utter ridiculousness of God's generosity in creation. The ridiculousness of it. Okay? This should actually affect the way we view creation. That creation is not some sort of bland backdrop on which really spiritual things happen, but that creation itself is actually valuable, that it's actually part of Jesus' mission, that Jesus is, in fact, intending to make creation itself new. So listen to this quote. Peel an orange. Do it lovingly, in perfect quarters, like little boats, or in staggered exfoliations, like a flat map of the round world, or in one long spiral, as my grandfather used to do. Nothing is more likely to become garbage than an orange rind. But for as long as anyone looks at it in delight, it stands a million triumphant miles from the trash heap. That, you know, is, the, uh, is why the world exists at all. It remains outside the cosmic garbage can of nothingness, not because... It is such a solemn necessity that nobody can get rid of it, but because it is the orange peel hung on God's chandelier, the wishbone in his closet. He likes it, therefore it stays. The whole marvelous collection of stones, skins, feathers, and string exists because at least one lover has never taken his eye off it. Because the Dominus Vivicans, the, the living one, the God of life, has his delight with the sons of men. We can be so blind to the simple magnificence of creation, of our livingness, that we forget the entire thing itself is a gift. He likes the world, therefore it stays. The entire reason we exist, the entire reason oranges and blood oranges and satsumas and yuzus and tangerines and hundreds of other citrus exist is simply God's good will. Just existence itself is his generosity. See, Jesus doesn't make measly wine, right? He's not about efficiency. He doesn't make just enough to get them through until they can buy some more. He makes outrageous amounts of outstanding wine. Ridiculous. Who is this guy? What budgetary process does he have in mind? Totally inefficient, totally lavish, we begin to see that this is actually how God has made the world. It's ridiculously lavish. We also see his power as creator. Jesus simply speaks and the wine is made. Jesus doesn't even touch it. He has someone else draw the water and it's wine. 
because Jesus is remaking the world. He is taking the world and making it new. He is filling it and enhancing it and glorifying it. In fact, he is bringing his glory into the world. So this is our next point, that Jesus is actually the consummator. He is bringing the world and his people to the consummation of all joy and glory in himself. Jesus is the glorious consummator. Now what do we mean by consummation? What's a consummation? Consummation is the climax of a story. It's the tying of all the threads together in one glorious unity. One final sweeping ending. The glorious goal of the story. Now this is, of course, what we also call weddings, right? It's the consummation of an engaged couple's love. Their sexual union as newly wedded people is the tying together of their lives. The one fleshiness. Jesus shows that he is the consummation of all things. Union with him is the great goal of our entire lives. And this is what the wedding at Cana shows us, that all things are designed for this. It shows us this in two ways, that in fact God has been doing this all throughout history, but that even our desires themselves are meant to be consummated in union with Christ. So look at verse 6. Jesus uh, finds these purification jars, uh, these rites of Jewish purification. Now these are the sorts of things that uh, you would use to wash your hands probably or other uh, ritual acts of purification at a wedding. It's likely washing your hands. Uh, And Jesus, interestingly enough, uh, takes these jars and has them filled with water, which is what they're for. But in fact, he fills them what? with his new wine. He fills these, uh, these rites and uh, rules of the Old Testament with a newer, fuller meaning. He does not replace them. He does not get rid of them. He fills them with a newer, fuller meaning. Now, the meaning is in the wine. Uh, the wine in the Old Testament is a picture of what's going to happen when the Savior comes, when Jesus, the great King, comes down onto earth and his kingdom is on the earth. This is what Joel 2 says. This is the picture of what will happen when the Lord comes. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. See, when the Savior comes, there's this picture of overflowing wine, ridiculous amounts of wine, of harvest, of celebration, because the kingdom of God himself has come down onto earth. But he begins not by pouring out wine on the church, but actually by pouring out his spirit on the church. Joel 2 continues, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In those days I will pour out my spirit. So the wine is this picture of where Jesus is bringing all things in himself. The entire aim of the Old Testament, of what God has been doing in history, is union with Jesus, being part of the age he is bringing, partaking of the feast of Christ, being given the Spirit. 
brothers and sisters, this should be our longing as well. We also see that the wedding itself points towards Jesus. If you've ever read through Revelation, Revelation ends, uh, at the, towards the end, ends with this picture of not only judgment, but a wedding. A wedding between Christ and his church. Nine, Revelation 19 says, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in the first two things we've seen that in fact the Lord is not opposed to our earthly life. He actually wants to cover our shame and fill and bless our lives with his goodness. In fact, our life itself is an act of his generosity. But what I want to say here is that Jesus is not simply content to leave us happy and blessed by ourselves. He is taking our lives to a much more glorious ending. The happiness and blessing that he gives us are meant to be offered back to him and to draw us closer to him. All of these things, when they're filled with the right meaning, draw us to a closer union with the Lord. Now this should teach us something. Uh, As C.S. Lewis says, our desires are too weak. We settle for too little when Christ himself is on offer. We settle, I think very often, for the cakewalk version of life. For the good job, uh, the nice home, uh, good stuff, cool stuff in our house, a basically peaceable marriage where the boat doesn't get rocked too much, and if it does, we move past it quick enough. It's nice, but it's fairly numbing. You are made for much more than the American dream. Much more. You are made for glorious, intimate union with Jesus himself, the one who has made all things. And this is, we see this most clearly in my fourth point here, that Jesus is the glorious, crucified one. Look at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, for John, in the book of John, whenever you see that hour, don't think in terms of clock, think in terms of moment. The hour for Jesus in the book of John is the hour of his public glorification. The moment at which all people see him as the great Messiah he really is, the one who has been promised. At the moment at which he has completed the work the Lord has given him to do. Turns out, that that moment is when he's lifted up on the cross. That Jesus' glorification, his greatest climax of his work, is in the cross and the resurrection as a unit. The hour he looks forward to is his execution as a criminal. Now this is the great irony of the Christian faith and of the gospel. That Jesus' climax, his glory, the thing he set his compass on, is his execution as a criminal. And yet, this is the moment that we see the beginning of the glorious defeat over sin, over our enmity to God, over our alienation from Him, our distance from Him. And the truth of the cross is displayed fully in the resurrection. It's the hour of His glory because it's the hour of His greatest generosity towards us. Sheer, unnoticed, 
no strings attached, kind gift. That's what the cross is. This is what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And did you hear it? Did you hear where our glory is? Did you hear where our consummation is? How it comes to us? It comes to us by following Jesus to the cross. Our greatest life, Jesus promises is given to us as we trust Him, as we give our lives to Him entirely, as we take up His cross. In Jesus' words, as we hate our life, we begin to taste and see and are given eternal life. Friends, uh, you are made for much more than parties with friends in a cushy life. You are made for much more than that. You are made to follow Jesus and embrace the cross he embraced for you. Not because you earn anything, but because there you have him. There you have Jesus. Just as Paul says, I have counted all things lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. See, as you give your life back to him, you begin to know the power of resurrection life. You begin to taste of the new wine. You are called to this not because God wants to take things from you or strip you of the things you need and strip you of good things. This is where our cynicism would lie to us. You are called to take up your cross with Jesus because our Lord intends to give you a new life. A life not built on yourself, but built on Him. To fill your life with new life. To give you the blessing of blessings. To give you Himself. As you give yourself more and more, you will taste and see. The Lord is not possessive. He's not desperate. He's gloriously generous. Let's pray. Lord, teach us. Give us hearts that believe your word. That you are bringing the new wine. That you are making all things new. Even us. That you intend to cover our shame and make us useful in your kingdom. That you intend to do great things with us as we give our lives to you. Lord Jesus, you are our glory. Fill us with love for you as we enjoy the world you've made. Lord, do this in our hearts by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.